welcome to the Think Factory podcast. We got one question for you. What keeps you up at night? All right, welcome to the Think Factory podcast. I'm Alex Anglum from OGC Solutions. I'm here today with two friends of mine, Brian Lydell from Fiden's Insurance Brokerage and Mark Schabertis from Amplix. We'll hear a little bit about both gentlemen uh, throughout the course of this two-part podcast, but I think we're going to start by talking to Brian a little bit. Brian, say hello and uh, tell our listeners a little bit about who you are. Okay. Hello, my name is Brian Lydell. I'm Managing Director of Fines Insurance Brokerage. Um, I, my prior career was an insurance attorney before transferring over to actually becoming an insurance broker. Um, I have been very specialized in the cyber and privacy field from the outset um, and, and have a lot of years of experience on it. And, and it's very pleasure to have me here, Alex. All right. Yeah. Thanks for coming on, Brian. And I'm glad you brought up your background because, um, you know, I think people understand they deal with insurance brokers all the time. They expect insurance brokers, I think, to be sales-oriented people. And of course, you are uh, an expert salesman, but you've got a technical background that's a little bit unusual. I, I assume you don't run across too many of your peers who uh, have been practicing attorneys. No, that, that's correct. And, and, and you know, it's like anything, Alex, um, you know, the devil's always in the details of these policies, and, and they're constantly changing. Uh, I think that's exactly right, and we'll probably talk a little bit more about how that's especially true in the in the context of cyber insurance in particular, and I think our listeners are going to want to hear a little bit about that as well. So uh, in your practice as an insurance broker, um, you know, there's some big names out there, some very, very large insurance brokerages and some very small insurance brokerages that are maybe just one person and an assistant. Uh, where does Fidens fit into that? Yeah, so I mean, we're we have about fifty agents overall. Um, you know, we, we have offices in, in in California, Florida, New York, Pennsylvania, New Jersey. Uh, we we work with clients both both in the U.S. as well as Canada, and we do have some European clients as well, especially in the global cybersecurity field. And I think it's probably accurate to say that a lot of Fiden's clients, like a lot of our clients at OGC Solutions, are in what we would sort of broadly call the middle market. That's correct. Yeah, so these are businesses that are pretty large, but they uh, maybe are not uh, big enough to get the best service from the biggest brokers out there. Yep, yeah, that's correct. And and I'm, the largest brokerages out there, you know, they 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 definitely have some of these in-house technicalities. But the problem there is they're really kind of reserved for the large companies. Unless you're paying millions of dollars of insurance premium, you're just not going to get these skill sets. So that's why we really kind of focus on that middle market that's kind of being underserved in that part where they still need they still need the, the risk engineering, they still need a risk assessment, and they still need the valuation as you would get with a large company. Because as we all know here, you know, part of it is you don't want to use the insurance. You want to prevent the insurance, the, the first part, which I know where Mark comes in later on. Right. Uh, but, but long story short, it, it's really important, especially with these words, as you know, Alex, um, you know, it's, it's one thing with the, the verbiage that's being changed. But it's another thing, as you know, in your career, uh, how do the courts interpret that? Right. And I think um, speaking about those large brokerages, it's been my experience in representing policyholders now for a couple of decades that although the large insurance brokers, uh, brokerage companies, and I don't want to name names, uh, they probably have 
everything you could want in terms of technical skill, but for middle market companies, they sometimes find that they're not getting access to the best people. They're not getting the Brian Lydell That's correct. at yeah. those places. So you give a little bit more individual service when you're at a Fidens, for example. That's correct. And that's why that's our sweet spot. Excellent. So let's talk a little bit about cyber insurance. Uh, obviously a subject we've both spent lots and lots of time on. I've been representing policyholders for a long time and increasingly get asked about cyber issues. Um, what, what can you tell the listeners about how standardized or not standardized the insurance policies, the insurance companies, and the overall products that get sold are in this, in this cyber marketplace? Is it still evolving? It is. It's interesting to say that because this year, coincidentally, we celebrate our 25th uh, anniversary of when this first cyber product was introduced in the marketplace. Is that right? I don't think I knew that. Yeah, that's right. 25th. And, and you know, back then, it was really the, the, there was an exposure that was kind of identified by the financial industry. So they created a product right now. Now, the reason you never really heard about it, it was reserved for large institutions. It was, it was, it was very cost, cost prohibitive. It was intended for large institutions and, and not the companies, you know, smaller companies, big mid-sized small companies and the such uh probably about is really the i would say 2000 you know 2010 to 2015 it's really when you started seeing uh it, it kind of expand all the way to a person that even as a sole proprietor could get an insurance policy um and for relatively you know a uh, really low price in fact I, I i always said this before that i think that with the but the, the, the market got so soft because in 2015, there was about 20, no, I'm sorry, it went from 20 to 50 insurance carriers providing cyber. And then 2017, two years later, all the MGA started really getting involved. That created even more competition, which all that competition drove down the premium. But the issue there is, and, and a lot of the policies started, uh, to your answer, a lot of the policies started resembling each other the same. A lot of the standardized wording, yes, some of it started to change, but it was, for the most part, people started copycatting certain languages because they felt it worked. Now we go into 2020s. We all know what happened here, right? With, with, with COVID, everyone working remotely, cyber claims, cyber loss has all increased by over 100%. The actual wordings themselves didn't probably protect the, the, the carriers or even their attentions. So now you start seeing a big diverging in one thing, the coverage terms, as well as pricing. And I think more now than ever, you don't, there's not really two policies I see that, that, that really look the same anymore. Um, the pricing, for the most part, has increased by almost 92%. And even though people argue that it somewhat has stabilized for the small and mid mid-sized businesses, the issue there is the price stabilization is only one side of the factor. Sometimes to achieve that price stabilization is they have to include other endorsements or limitations that normally wouldn't be there. Um, and perfect case in point is starting to see a lot of carriers starting to sublimit uh, ransom uh, uh, widespread breaches. What happens if it affects multiple ones so they can control the risk as well as ransomware where they will not provide the full limit. Um, and what, what you started, and even that being said, even if you look at the fine lining of those endorsements themselves, Alex, is those are not standard endorsements either. They all reflect something different on exactly what is a widespread breach. How does it actually kick in? Um, even the ransomware of exactly what would occur to basically get advantage of uh, the full limit uh, if there's not a co-insurance clause and everything else. So the question is now, is these policies that I'm seeing become more and more different? Carriers are changing it. They're limiting the endorsements. Um, and I think we're going to continue to see that. Everything that you said sounds right. I want to touch on 
two quick points, one sort of fun, one sort of practical. The one that's fun is you started mentioning just over the last few years, you were mentioning timeframes of less than 10 years where a lot of insurance companies weren't even selling this. There were still a small number of insurance companies that you mentioned that were selling it, and that's gone up. I mean, I think for someone who's, um, let's say, not an insurance person, that would probably be surprising. They probably wouldn't expect that. Uh, you know, there were m- most of the insurance companies out there were not selling this product just a few years ago, right. which is kind of fun. And if you want to contrast how old some other products are, um, I had heard, uh, uh, you know, a, a history presentation uh, about some of the details they were looking into around the time of the Revolutionary War. And some of the records that they were looking at to try to establish what commercial activity was going on and what people were doing and what the what the colonists were doing in the 1700s. Some of the records they were looking at were the insurance records of the cargo uh, insurance for the voyages across right. the Atlantic. So that'll give you a sense of the difference, the stability, the age of things like cargo insurance and property insurance versus cyber insurance, which... Although it may be standard for businesses to purchase it now, is still anything but standard in a lot of ways. So I, I think that, like I said, the, the, uh, you know, how far that goes back in history is kind of a fun little detail for me. Yeah, and, um, and you talk about <clears throat> hundreds of, of uh, hundreds of hundreds of years of case law, even if you stem it all the way back from London, where insurance really kind of really got its origins from. Compared to 25 years. Right. And then I think and, the and practical... even those 25 years, it's only about, you know, 10, 15 years where the average consumer, it became very popular for the average consumer client. That, that's right. Absolutely. And I, the, the practical point I was going to make is, um, again, just for a, a buyer of insurance, somebody who works at a middle market company, maybe a CFO um, who might be, uh, you know, have that fall within their responsibility to renew the insurance program every year and interact with their insurance broker... I think most of them really are still operating under the assumption that they're really just looking at the price. So their property insurance program, their general liability, products liability, they're really just looking at, hey, what are the prices uh, that we're getting? And that's how we're making our buying decision uh, as long as the uh, insurance companies that are offering those prices are financially secure. Uh, but they really can't look at cyber that way. They really have got to assume there's a good chance that they're not making an apples-to-apples comparison when they look at different quotes from different carriers that they may be offered. They really need a help uh, of a Brian Lydell or or somebody like our firm who can advise them about what these policies really cover, what they don't cover, what the differences might be, and maybe more on your side, what the capabilities are of the different insurance companies to help in the event of a loss. Right. which is another important aspect of these policies. So with that in mind, I know we've talked a lot recently. You uh, and I and uh, Mark Schubertus have talked a lot about this issue of rescinding insurance policies, and rescission is sort of an insurance legal term, but uh, we'll just say voiding a policy, that the circumstances when an insurance company can come along after there's a loss and void an insurance policy. You think you could tell our listeners a little bit about 
Like, when can an insurance company do that? What, right. what could allow them to just void a policy like it never happened? Yeah, a lot of times it has to be a material representation, misrepresentation or material omission. So you basically represented something that was material to the underwriter or you failed to, you, you omitted something that's relevant that really should have been included in the application. Um, and, and as you're aware, the reason behind the rescission, which is scary, is that means that the policy never exists in the first place. The carrier basically says, if this is material, the underwriters would have not have written this policy if they were aware of the misrepresentation or omission, and therefore there shouldn't have been any policy. Um, and the biggest issue with cyber is, is, is we haven't seen too much rescissions, but I do believe it's going to be increasing now, uh, especially with a lot of these forms, a lot of the reliance. These applications are not the same, as you're aware of, Alex. These applications are getting very particular in how they ask questions. And I think the reason is the carriers are, are trying to protect themselves. If, if it's not A, B, and C is set up in the application, that could be material to the underwriter. And many times that could be a, a matter of rescission for them because they actually have now, there's a difference of a you know uh, persuasive guidelines and mandatory guidelines and when you have mandatory guidelines saying that if you don't have for example mfa set up for for uh you know uh, external users administrative that could be material to the underwriter meeting that it's very clear that the, the policy would be sin- rescinded there's no coverage if those are not answered properly um i think it's a helpful description right i mean it really comes down to something simple maybe i'll reflect that back to you in a simple example if you've got a client one of your customers buying a fire insurance policy for their building, one of the questions on the application is probably going to be, do you have sprinklers? Is the building sprinklered? Is it, is it protected by a central station monitoring? Things like that, nuts and bolts kind of questions. And if the applicant for insurance says yes, and the correct answer is no, well, then after that building burns down, uh, they're going to have some explaining to do, and it's probably going to result in rescission of the policy. Uh, but I think the important thing that I want to make sure people understand, I've been trying to tell clients now for some time, is it doesn't have to be a lie. It could be an inadvertent misrepresentation, right? You could, if you say that the answer is yes, and you think it's yes, you believe it truthfully, but it turns out that that's wrong, the policy could be voided. The issue, though, is... Some of these questions in the cyber insurance applications are a bit more complicated than does the building have sprinklers. That's right. Have you found that some of the questions that are asked are even maybe difficult to understand? Yes. You know, a perfect example is is when you talk about encryption. They say, are your devices encrypted? And they have a yes, you know, they have mobile devices, uh, any type of devices that could be in the building, uh, including laptops and mobile devices. And then they have a yes and no. What happens if only sometimes it's encrypted? How do you answer that if it's a yes, no answer and they don't actually have sometimes or, 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 or something? Because that's not, we know that there's certain material that really needs to be encrypted for sensitivity. Obviously, yes, the best goal is to have everything encrypted, but we know the sensitive material really needs to be when it's communicated, uh, collected, processed, everything else. Uh, but the issue there is what happens if you answer the yes to that and find out that it's not every single device? Uh, you know, what happens if it's, you know, you're, you're, you're migrating devices and, and some devices at that time aren't actually, uh, don't have the updated protocols. Um, you start really surrendering that issue of, of answering favorably, of, of being open with the underwriter because they consider that material. If the, if the answer is very, very objective like that, and there's only a yes or no answer, you know, my advice is don't answer either of them and make a new column and put sometimes. <laughs> you know, you just want to make yeah, sure. Yeah, sure. Or, or, 
have you found that some carriers, uh, some insurance companies might be willing to accept a softer representation? In other words, are they willing to accept that, yeah, we've looked into this question and to the best of our knowledge, the answer is X. Yes. And that's something that you can interact with the underwriter and see if they're willing to accept that softer type of approach? Yes. It all depends on the underwriter and the carrier. Um, and, you know, one of the issues you've been finding out is there are a lot more carriers that weren't traditional carriers in this marketplace. A lot of the MGAs created. And a lot of this is they, they, they're tech, they're, they're insure tech platforms, which definitely reduce the call, curb the cost of insurance. They're excellent, you know, uh, uh, avenues to explore. But the thing there is they really are very strict in their application need to be filled out. They sometimes can give a big hassle if you, let's say, um, very, you know, you, you give a variant answer that's not a yes or no in their application. Mm. And I'm not saying you can't push it through, but it does push it back. And not all of them would accept it. And then at that point, it's fine. But then you have to have an understanding. We're answering yes to this. But please make a note that this is what we discussed, just to make sure that there's some underwriting file about it that might not be on the application. Right. Well, getting the answers to these questions, getting these technical details and understanding the questions is definitely something we're going to touch on in part two when we're talking a little bit more focused on Mark Schubertus' side because he's somebody that can help and provide help uh, with you know getting the answers to these questions. But another thing that uh, Mark will probably be able to touch on is – have you had the, or has your experience been that insurance companies, while you're applying for cyber insurance, are requiring that additional steps be taken, additional technical means to prevent losses, additional, you know, bolstering of security practices, protocols, hardware upgrades, things like that? Are you seeing that? Yes, I'm starting to see it more and more. I mean, when you're the small business, they're a lot more lenient on, but they also know that the exposure is less. Once you start getting to midsize and larger, the, the, especially when you go to the mid-market, even the underwriters, it's become very strict because at the end of the day, they just don't know where these losses can lead to. Like you mentioned, the past three years, when you talk about over a 100% claim and expense difference, and that underwriter's right in the premium, they have their underwriting fees, they have the cost to run the carrier, and then you're taking 100% more loss than what you're supposed to be taking, these carriers need to find a way to make money you know, without exiting the industry. Because I don't care what industry you're in, cyber attacks are industry agnostic. And I've seen them happen all the way from restaurants, all the way to law firms. I mean, insurance carriers themselves have been hacked. Yeah, that's true. There's actually been some very notable breaches of law firms, uh, very embarrassing in addition to financially damaging um, situations. You know, the the people that you'd probably uh, assume were examples of who would be very, very well protected um, have actually been victims, right? I mean, even uh, the government, right? Even our federal government has been essentially hacked. I think they had a major problem with solar winds. Solar winds, that's right? correct. So, you know, they're operating, obviously, at a very high level of sophistication, and they're still getting hit. So nobody's totally immune, that's for sure. And and we all know this. It's and I'm pretty sure Mark will, will apprise more about this during, uh, during his session, but it's it's always a cat and mouse game. When we say that the sophistication on how to defend it increases, the hackers will always find new ways and new protocols and new actual ways to introduce this stuff. They're, they're, 
that as far as I'm concerned, it always seems like a lot of the actual people that are violating this are, are probably the ones that usually are a head step in the game. I hate to say it from my experience because it seems like it's always a catch-up game on how to prevent that happening again. And when they come out with an innovative way to cause this breach, it seems like it works for the most part. And, and, and let's be frank, the cost of... A, of, of I've had clients that their systems have worked beautifully. Systems got shut down. There was absolutely no breach found. But how do you confirm that? The only way you confirm that is forensics. And the bigger your company, the sophistication of your defensive mechanisms, that could easily be quarter million dollars just to confirm that, wow, our systems did work and there was no breach. Yeah, that's a good point, right, is that that proving a negative, like proving that you weren't, your systems were not compromised and there hasn't been a breach, um, you sometimes have to do that. And that's, uh, it's a difficult thing to do. And you, you can't just say, you know, well, I, I, I looked around, I didn't see anything, right? I mean, you're going to have to have a more robust answer than that. And that costs money and takes technical, technical resources. All right. So, in the Think Factory podcast, uh, when we're talking to business people, normally we always ask the question of what keeps you up at night. I think for purposes of today, uh, given your role, Brian, and Mark's role, I think we're going to modify that question very slightly and say, since you're a service provider helping your clients protect against other risks. What keeps you up at night about what your clients, in, in the sense of what your clients don't know or should know about protecting themselves and maybe better using your services? Yeah. That's a good point. So, I mean, what you kind of mentioned with the cyber, it's one thing with the applications, right? The applications, it's important that the, the, the agent themselves truly understands what the ramifications are behind there. And perfect example, when it comes to experience, there's certain times I could see certain questions being answered, and then one of them either being answered, no, that could be harmful or disadvantageous to the, to the insured. That you have to kind of understand where a company their size should have some of these controls. Or, they, or, or even when they answered no, they probably do, they just don't realize it. Uh, which is really why the, the 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 need for the IP providers like Mark and all that really come into handy. Uh, and I got to one of the things that really keep me up at night is when you when some of these companies use smaller uh, IP providers. I can tell you that I've been running into more and more issues where the IP providers aren't actually even correct in what they're responding because it might be a chatbot. I don't know what it is. But it starts to concern me where even some of these providers themselves that you hand it off to aren't actually fully providing the information because maybe it's just not getting to the right person that fully understands these cyber questions either. Um, so it, one thing is definitely I recommend, even if people do have an IP provider, I, I always recommend that's something that should be vetted out and making sure that they have a test that everything is working as it should be. Um, and then also has it kind of set up that they can actually provide um, – you know, uh, risk medication techniques, either if it's penetration and they, they kind of are on top of it to make sure that, that they're doing their job. But when it comes down to me sleeping at night, it is a big concern because when the IP, IP providers start to get it wrong, these answers, then you start having a problem because, I don't know, Alex, that's a question I would have to ask you. How does that work with the carrier then, right? That, that becomes the big, biggest grayish area is you have to rely on their representations. And somebody's, on, you know, not as established providers don't have the resources to, to actually acknowledge somebody's questions or it's not getting to the right person. What happens then with a the claim? And I think that's, that's we're going to find out soon enough. I hate to say it. Yeah, well, we're, we're hoping that we're going to find out by reading it in the news and that our clients, yours and mine, have a better team involved at the 
front end, and they really had these issues off at the past. And I think in terms of what keeps you up at night, that's really what it would make me think of, right? Which is that um, in order to let Brian Lydell sleep at night, that uh, that his clients are are well taken care of and really protected themselves the way that they think they have. Uh, the best way for them to do that is to make sure that they've got the right team involved. And uh, this has been a great conversation, Brian. I think this is a good uh, segue into what's going to be part two, where we focus a lot on what Mark Schubertus and his team can bring to the table in terms of cybersecurity, uh, technical know-how, having the right team involved, and also uh, direct participation in the process of buying cyber insurance to be part of the team with uh, perhaps uh, your firm as the broker, perhaps our firm as their outside general counsel, um, and that they really have a, I don't want to use this sort of a you know, maybe overused phrase of a 360 review, but maybe maybe that's a helpful analog to think about it, which is to say when you're buying, an, you know, insurance for your cyber risks, you're really engaged in uh, a an overall risk management exercise uh, centered around a particular kind of risks. You're not just buying a standardized product, right? You really need a whole team, Right. And that's where you can come in and Mark can come in and our firm can come in and really, we, we think, uh, produce some value. And I know that Fidens does that for their clients every day. That's right. And, and, and there is a distinction between our services because at the end of the day, look, we do the best. We know what the language is and we do our best to see, well, how does that language apply in scenarios? We're not reading case law every day. I mean, that, that, that's, well, that's why it's so important to, to, to really almost, especially for bigger companies, to have the counsel because attorneys are reading case law every single day. It might not necessarily be to the actual point, but you know it could be persuasive. And that's the most important part of actually knowing, you know, interpreting, consulting, even with each other. Because as brokers, yes, we know changes of language. We know t- changes of wording. But at the same time, talking about constantly following case law, is, is that that's a job for an attorney such as yourself. It's absolutely true, Brian. I actually cannot go to sleep at night. I can't consider it a full day unless I've read at least one case. <laughs> I have to read at least one case before I go to sleep. It's my job as an attorney. No, in all seriousness, a great conversation. Thank you very, very much for your time. I hope our listeners, and I think our listeners, really appreciate the insight. Thanks. This is Alex Anglum. It's been a great conversation. Once again, it's Brian Lado at Finds Insurance Brokerage, and it's such a pleasure having me today.